0: night falls on the golden age of humanity. Suns shall turn upon their father and his worlds drown in blood. The eyes shall open and the galaxy will burn. Join us listeners. We go into the canon lore of the Forge World Black Books on Heresy Grad School. Professors Jason patrick and dave myself will dive into the lore of the black books and the black library novels that we know and love and explore the heresy as history so get a coffee get your notebook out and uh prepare to explore heresy as history with us on heresy grad school well hello
1: everybody and welcome back to another episode of uh, heresy grad school where you have professors dave jason and myself patrick we're uh, continuing our our full coverage of the Corona deeps and i believe today we're starting with uh the battle of hive ilium which if you're following along at home uh, in your black book it's on uh, page 48 did i get that right jason
2: absolutely do it
1: fantastic
2: all right squad Let's talk some Sons of Horus battle tactics here.
1: What? what?
2: <laughs> so this is a little near and dear to Pat's heart. He is uh, definitely our uh, chief resident Sons of Horus player. But
1: uh, <clears throat> Just dust my shoulders off at that one. Thank you. Right.
2: Everybody can see that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, all right. So let's talk what's going on with the Sons of Horus here. Now, we've talked many times so far about how this entire deal through the Manichean Commonwealth, uh, through the Cyclops Cluster, everything is coming from Horace's plan of the Isvan betrayal, coming back through, more or less reconquering these planets that he'd already conquered during the Great Crusade, and sort of a dark compliance. Um, and where uh, the Cyclops Cluster is a little more geared towards the Death Guard and what they have going on, uh, the fights here in the Manichean Commonwealth are without a doubt spearheaded by the Sun's Force. They come up time and time and time again with plenty of. Uh, we spoke about four of their uh, really iconic vessels last time, uh, not the least of which would be Abaddon's flagship, the Kingbreaker. Or, excuse me, King Eater. Kingbreaker, completely different. But um, so the King Eater is working some business here in the Manichean commonwealth uh specifically in the attack on Manichea Vaisadeh itself now Visidae like we discussed last time it's the seat of government for the entire common um, their seat of governance on the planet itself is a, a hive spire called uh to do t- t- the palace of light so in this palace of light things aren't going great uh again we talked last time about how stuff's uh Stuff's going down. Uh, everything got really rough last at the Palace of Light because they don't understand where all of these attacks are coming from. They don't understand that uh, Port Ma has been uh, more or less gridlocked by this point. Uh, almost in the same way uh, the traders took a look at Cal. Uh, Cal was probably never going to work out for the word bearers, in the same way Port Ma was probably never going to work out for the traders, all on their own devices. But Even if it just stayed the exact same, then the loyalist elements would be so hopelessly torn apart and gridlocked that it wouldn't make a difference. So here on Hive Ilium, which is where the Palace of Light resides. So uh, this is a fortified hive like no other. Uh, It has multi-layered defenses just as potent as like any warship you're going to find. Uh, multi-layered layered voids, power fields, batteries of surface-to-air missiles, huge laser banks, defensive turrets, uh, you name it, it's got it. And two, the Hive, uh, it's so massive, like, even its sheer size is kind of a defense, because it's really hard to assault a target effectively if this that's this large. And the Sons of Horus have a very uh, strategic plan going into it. They know exactly what they're going to do. Uh, the attack on the Vaisadei is of a textbook, Sons of War, Surgical Strike. Uh, their initial descent is led by Abdon on King Eater. And it's a 3D spear tip formation that uh, of warships, capital ships, uh, arranged so they're minimizing the amount of uh, surface area, basically, that can be affected by uh, ground-based defenses. So uh, this allows them to maximize firepower on a relatively small space in the hive. And they use that to kind of probe for weaknesses in the void field. But what's interesting is the majority of the incoming fire from the Sons of Horus isn't necessarily going after key targets because these are really heavily defended under a multi-layered void fields, things like that. What they're doing with most of it is they're directing at sprawls of the city that are kind of you know habitation blocks, factorums, things like that, and flattening them uh, in the assault from this spear tip. There's only a single ship. Uh, from the Sons of Horus, called the Oblivion. It's a strike cruiser. Uh, It's forced to pull from the assault when its shields collapse because it takes a little too much of that incoming ground fire, which kind of has to be, uh, like, imagine being that guy. Like, you're the captain that's forced to pull your ship, like one and only ship check out of that assault force. Probably doesn't uh, go down too well in the barracks after that.
1: little awkward uh, situation with Abaddon, I can only imagine.
2: Yeah, Abaddon probably did not have pleasant words for this dude after the fact. However, this is their first wave, and all it's there to do is probe for weaknesses in these multi-layered void fields, which they capitalize on when they find them, but more so, it's directed at these large open city sprawls, and just flattening them as much open space as they can make out the second wave uh is made up of what i thought was kind of interesting uh they specifically mentioned condor class and smaller more agile warhawk class stormbirds which so far i think the only one we've seen really is the socar pattern and it's kind of neat to get like uh sort of like the same deal you've heard about tons of different classes of type that we haven't really seen stuff well i guess uh (laughs) If you're around uh, playing the really old school, like, 1998 version of Adeptus Titanicus. But um, we get hints of, like, some of these other patterns that we haven't seen. But uh, besides these uh, different classes of Stormbirds, you also have scores of, like, uh, newer Thunderhawks and Storm Eagles coming. And as soon as they break through the anti-air defenses, they break into strafing runs in, like, super low-altitude, like, city streets know dodging through everything totally in violation of like airspace codes but you know who's going to stop them uh and this again is another example of the really typical sons of horse precision strikes they're going after power relays vox casters flak weapons batteries these big defensive dome complexes that house like surface-to-air missiles uh orbital batteries things like that and this is when uh i mean the gathering of like commanders and you know data processors and everything in the palace of light they're already not on, you know, not happy with what's going down, but now they're really starting to do, like, backflips. Because um, it's really obvious when the Sons of Horus are coming in that they have advanced plotting of a lot of different things from the hive. Uh, fire lanes where, like, concealed power hubs and, like, gun nests are... You know, hidden uh, to the point it becomes really obvious that there's been a betrayal within the Manushain Commonwealth itself. Very similar uh, to what happened at Port Mon. And uh, reports of the Sons of Horus making groundfall are really uh, getting to them. They're you know uh, redoubled requests for aid, and it's really become obvious they're pretty detached from what's going on in the hive itself. Uh, kind of stuck in their spire, only really getting reports and data feeds. stuff going on outside. So the very first targets these Sons of Horus uh, touching down on were these big dome complexes that housed like their defense lasers (laughs) and things like that. And again, we see the solar auxilia defending these complexes. And individually, they're not really a match for Astartes, and they're never going to be because they're the best of the best of the human army, but they are still just human. However, uh, they do uh, set up really disciplined fire lanes and when you get the constant stream of las fire going it's gonna find you know gaps in even a armor uh vision slits suit joins things like that uh, but even through all of that and the resistance that the uh, elite solar auxilia are putting up the sons of horus are slowly pushing forward and as soon as those sons of horus hit the lines of the solar auxilia, there's not really a whole lot a mortal can do against an Astartes in close combat. So it's difficult, but they're getting there and resistance is kind of crumbling as soon as they make it to those lines. Uh, conversely, the conscripted militias that are coming about are barely offering resistance. They're falling apart before even making contact with the Sons of Horus. It's not great. Uh, however, these militias, while suffering god-awful casualties, uh, it does actually give the Commonwealth time to retaliate. So they've got thousands and thousands of troops and hundreds of tanks uh, mobilizing, getting ready from these massive subsurface bunker complexes. And if left to their own devices, uh, it would have been more than enough to overwhelm this spear-tip force that the Sons of Horus had dropped onto key targets. However abaddon being abaddon uh this isn't his you know the length and breadth of his plan there's a third wave coming which too is kind of interesting from its inclusion uh 15 different drop ships make landfall in those ruins uh that were cleared out by the first wave of the ship bombard and each one of these has a titan of legio tempestus now legio tempestus has a very checkered colored history and there's a whole lot of stuff that we only get hints about like uh what's the difference between legio tempestus and legio tempester uh so you'll recognize tempestus as one of the original triad ferrum uh, between tempestus ignatum and legio mortis uh they do have a temple complex on mars right up until the end of the heresy in uh one of the Mons volcanoes. <clears throat> now, uh the contingent on Mars of Tempestus actually uh pretty famously ends up being destroyed to an engine defending the Magma City. Uh however, the bulk of Tempestus is actually on campaign in the Great Crusade under their Princess Senoris. Uh, Maximus Caronia. Now, this guy uh, is heavily influenced by Horace. Most of the remaining uh, Tempestus Legion on crusade end up traitor. But what's interesting, uh, time and time again, uh, all three of us here—Pat, Dave, and myself—have made reference to Dan Abnett's Titanicus uh, because it's possibly the greatest book ever written. However, um, if, if you haven't heard, read it, go read it. Just yeah, do it now. Like, stop listening to us, even. <laughs> Put us down, go read it, come back, we'll still be here. But Titanicus might not be. You never know, so do it now. But uh, you'll remember uh, Orestes' Hive, which is where, uh, or Orestes' Forge, excuse me, is where the bulk of Tempestus is housed now after the Heresy, and it's where uh, most of Titanicus takes place there. So uh, right after the Heresy, the remaining loyalist parts of Tempestus are moved to Orestes, where they make themselves, you know, a new happy little forge planet. Uh, In the meantime, on the heretical sides of things, there's a very big slice of Tempestus under Horus' sway. And this is a big part of uh, what's coming down on Hive Ilium. Uh, they're met by the tanks of the Solar Auxilia, uh, these 15 Titans, um, just batteries of basilics, leman russ, uh, scores of malkadors, uh, protecting screens for bane blades and shadow swords. Uh, but this is not like a small incursion force. This is 15 individual Titans from Tempestus, led by the warlord Agrippa.
1: Do we know anything else other than there's the one warlord, or are they all...
2: Jason it so, doesn't mention specifically does it
0: no so we don't we don't know anything more about the warlord titan uh, agrippa although i will i will i will put good money um on the fact that i think when adeptus titanicus uh releases rules for legio tempestis i we we may see more about it um but on page 138 in book 4 uh there's actually a really good sort of roll call and you get some further depth on what their strength is and their strength in this part of the campaign. Um, Great call out box on the treachery of Maximus Carania, Jason just mentioned. Um, and then an even better call out box, really, it's the whole page on 141, the shattering of Spire Zero. So we won't go into that, but that is uh, that's the, the Tempestus uh, incursion on uh, on high and shattering of Spire Zero. So check it out. I mean, at some point, we're definitely gonna have to
2: do kind of a deep dive on legio Tempestus. there's a lot of business there
0: yeah definitely
2: It's a follow-up to our legio mortisode right <laughs> all right so that's what's going on on high villium stuff's not looking great however uh port Mall stuff's looking a little bit better in question mark it's a little subjective but so at port Mall here uh everything's been thrown down battle lines have formed up uh full-on kind of standoff Uh, Traders and Loyalists are divided up on each side. They've formed uh, semicircular battle lines, like thousands of kilometers long. Uh, They're both attempting to kind of use the bulk of the uh, little artificial planetoid of Port Ma itself, kind of shield the maneuvers they're making. Uh, The Loyalists are gaining strength pretty rapidly. They're starting to get stuff figured out. They're numerically a little bit superior. uh, But now that they've destroyed that Panopticon, which we talked about last time, Uh, They're really starting to get their business together. But still, uh, neither force really has enough of a numerical or strategic advantage to really be able to attack uh, with any degree of certain victory and neither really want to give up, you know, that initial strike or worse yet, uh, retreat and give up Port Maw itself because it's a huge tactical asset. So both fleets are kind of deadlocked in this sort of double crescent around Port Maw. Now, what's going to break this deadlock uh, It's what's described as a dark fleet uh, coming in uh, from an unexpected direction, uh, sort of uh, galactically above and behind the Port Maw's loyalist fleet, which we've talked about a whole bunch, uh, led by... Uh, Grand Admiral LeBray uh, on board his giant uh, ship Triumph of Reason. So, uh, LeBray has a big issue right now because essentially, if this fleet coming in, they're not responding to hails, they're not broadcasting any cipher codes, nobody knows what the heck they are. Uh, they can actually get a little bit of a visual uh, on thrust flares, and they can estimate it's about 20 vessels, half of which are capital ships. So, <clears throat> this is pretty important here. lebray has got this choice to make. Uh, he notices immediately there's a sort of masking technology, and it's causing problems with his auspex returns. I mean, but to be fair, like, what kind of doesn't cause problems with auspex returns? Like, hot weather, cold weather, humidity. But <sighs> he can't get any definite fixes on these incoming vessels. However, uh, he does know that Raven Guard ship's have allegedly been using like this sort of displacement technology, uh, and he's heard that you know from all of the rumor mills flying around, they were allegedly wiped out at S five. However, this could be a splinter fleet, um, you know, of, you know, Raven Guard survivors coming back through, which has happened a lot. Uh, We spoke last time and several times before about many loyalist Astartes fleets kind of stopping off at Port Ma to rearm as best they can before heading on back towards Terra. So he makes a pretty big gamble here. Uh, He finally gives the order. He tells uh, his fleet, to rearrange to abandon their position in the deadlock with the trader fleet at Portmont and rearrange to come about to face this new incoming bunch of vessels. Now, this is about 20 vessels, and it mentions specifically Lebray outnumbers them about four to one. Uh, These are ships that he could defeat pretty easily if it was just them, but if it was added to the trader fleet, that could be more than enough to kind of tip that balance of the deadlock we were talking. Out. So as LeBray orders his you know, Crescent-shaped Ormana turn and engage, uh, the traitor fleets kind of adjust accordingly to match him. So as soon as that new miniature fleet gets in range, uh, LeBray orders his visuals picked up on the Ocularis... And- immediately realizes he's made a huge mistake so first off he was right sort of uh out front are what's referred to as two dagon class grand cruisers uh bearing the heraldry of the raven guard however they're very heavily damaged and uh uh, let's see now torn and burned in the fires at battle uh The problem here is he quickly realizes these are no longer Raven Guard vessels. I'm going to read a little teeny passage here that highlights it pretty well. Uh, What came after them was not of the Raven Guard. The monster rose behind the battle barges, making them seem as mere frigates in comparison to its nightmare magnitude. It was a ship no Imperial captain could ever have failed to recognize at first glance. It was a war machine few vessels could ever hope to match, but what its presence purported was darker still. It was the Vengeful Spirit. It was the flagship of Horus. So, first off, the Vengeful Spirit is famous enough to be known across the galaxy, that, like, first day of officer training in the Imperialis Armada, you can recognize it at first glance. And if the Vengeful Spirit is here, it means Horus is here in person. And to it's hard to keep in perspective because we're just reading about, you know, this fun engagement but to them this is basically a god born from the hand of the emperor himself that has spent the last 200 years conquering the galaxy and now his direct attention is turned on you and your mortal fleet like that has to be a pretty intense set of emotions you know coming at you all at once all right so let's talk about uh i mean as soon as horus shows up Kinda know it's a little bit of a foregone conclusion, but there's some fun, interesting stuff before it gets there. So absolute textbook Sons of Horus idea. Uh, The Sons of Horus fleet, although vastly outnumbers, uh, vastly outnumbered by the loyalists. Uh, It forms into a spear tip and drives straight through the Loyalist Crescent line, dividing it in two. Uh, They push the Raven Guard Grand Cruisers out front to kind of soak up the majority of that incoming fire. And the Vengeful Spirit uh, has... No reservations whatsoever. It drives straight forward, directly at the point of that spear tip. Actually smashes aside smaller cruisers, uh, like they aren't even there. And what I thought was kind of interesting, um, another little passage here. Along its darkly armored flanks, strange symbols, writ as if by a colossal hand, seemed to flicker and fade, as if pulsing to some terrible heartbeat, and the void around it appeared to twist and recoil. Which... Uh, Dave Pat, you guys got any thoughts on this?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh it's definitely Warcraft. It's the uh the the pact that Horus has made with the dark gods. No, I I have no idea. Um but yeah, it could be anything, man. It could be um could be, you know, Horus has well, he hasn't gone to Moloch yet. So, I mean, I don't know how much he's really and at this point really um I don't know how much the Davonite priests have have really influenced him. Pat, you probably are more of an expert on this than Anna. I mean,
1: I was gonna say the Davonite priests are probably actually at their height right about now. Cause essentially, um, if you read the the uh the novella uh Twisted, uh Malagurst essentially Horace has been Horace and Erebus have been feeding him like, oh, this is how you perform these dark arts and this is how you lock your soul away and things. And there's a certain point in that book where he's walking down, like, uh, I'm trying to think what the, what the room is where Horace has all of his, uh, his victories displayed and, and everything he's won. Uh, but he described, he describes the whole hallway as, as almost haunted as, as possessed as the shadows come at you. Um, but also in that same book, he kills all of the Davonites that are on the, uh, ventral spirit. So, well, one yeah.
2: thing definitely, um, stuck out to me is pretty interesting these runes are large enough that they can be seen from ship to ship combat so it's not like you know they're tiny and inscribed along like gun muzzles or something they're large enough that you can see them from an opposing ship which is pretty crazy like when you think about the scale of like how big the vengeful spirit is
1: and that definitely like speaks to like some some word bearer Nonsense, because don't they do that with all of their ships as well? So,
2: uh, to be fair, they also have one ship with a giant book front within which hides a giant
1: cannon. Still, sounds like a stupid ship to me. But uh, but all <laughs> right, we'll agree to disagree.
2: I mean, the Furious Abyss is possibly the stupidest ship. I won't argue that. I'm just saying it exists.
1: Look at my book! Ha ha! It's just a cannon. <laughs> Little did they know. But yeah, I mean, this is totally the height of like when Malgar starts learning how to um, use the warp, and like we have the fi- the founding of like the Looper Call, which are the the um, the Galvor back of the Sons of Horus. Um, oh right, right, right. But I but I won't that. go into that tangent. <clears throat> but <laughs> I can definitely see um, how uh, the vengeful spirit starts to be corrupted already so that's
2: a good point i did not think about that Yep. all right all right so let's talk here about what the vengeful spirit is getting up to it's got a single target the triumph of reason very heart of the loyalist armada now this is uh again it's two macro battleships welded together uh the triumph of reason is not a small ship and as the Vengeful Spirit steams toward it. Uh, It really looks, it closes to pretty much ramming range. Uh, It even mentions the Vengeful Spirit made as if to ram the vast double hull triumph of reason. But as it closed, the guns of both Hunter and Deadly Prey blazing savagely. The Vengeful Spirit's engines flared and spun suddenly on its axis a maneuver which, at that velocity, should have been fatal for any ship of its size. The manic and unexpected turn smashing to dust two hapless escorts that found themselves in its path, while a bastion frigate that caught the full blast of the spirit's engines as it swung was flung burning to the void. The space between the two gargantuan warships seemed to distort and shudder as if the ship of the Warmaster violently arrested its progress so that it now flew above and alongside the Triumph matching her course and velocity. In response to the seemingly impossible maneuver and the threat now looming vulture-like over the triumph, the lumbering giant below tried to throw herself aside to evade what was to happen next, or at least to roll and bring her own broadsides to bear. But she was too slow, and it was too late. So the warp trickery does not uh, does not constrain itself just to a uh, really sick paint job on the side of the vengeful spirit. Uh, Horus is now full-on using warp magics to, I don't know, that almost sounds like a Tokyo Drift, like, you know, sideways maneuver, but it's something a ship that large shouldn't be able to do. Uh, It should be straight-up impossible.
1: He somehow uh, found a demon that was really into nitrous and bound it (laughs) to the uh, engines, is that what you're trying to say?
2: But now in this new position, the vengeful spirit is so close, it can't miss, it launches a full-on broadside of vortex torpedoes at more or less dead zero range, uh, bypassing the shields and just evaporating the armor of the Triumph of Reason. Uh, and thing that jumped out at me here, it mentions specifically the armor of the uh, Triumph of Reason is a decameter thick, which would be 10 meters or, if you must, 33 feet Uh that's uh, that's pretty substantial. That's like a three stories worth of solid armor.
0: Jason, um, I was pleased to see vortex missiles mentioned here. Do, do you know? Do they work the same way in Battlefleet Gothic? Like when you take vortex missiles, how do, do you know how they work? Because I know you, you. I think you have access. I do. Yes, dark
2: Mac, yeah, yeah. They're pretty terrific in uh, Battlefleet Heresy. So uh, it's a torpedo that does normal damage all torpedo rules but automatically causes a critical hit
0: oh shit
2: yeah they're scary oh so
1: go ahead, jason sorry i didn't mean to interrupt
0: <laughs> no
2: it's a constant like it's definitely some give and take because you either get a nova cannon or nine vortex torpedoes on the front end of a camp battleship it's uh it's a really tough call they're both pretty great
1: so I think it's interesting how they describe the Vortex missiles as rare and deadly weapons of the dark age of technology. So that, I mean, they probably didn't think to look back at, like, when did the Mechanicum rules come out? Armada?
0: So actually, I'm I'm looking at the um, warp storm that... Uh, Jason got me for Battlefleet Gothic and this was published at, it was published in 2000. Ooh. So yeah so vortex torpedoes along with like melt torpedoes, barrage bombs seeking torpedoes right all the torpedoes. Mm-hmm. Um, really all the all the you know the non-standard torpedoes came out in, uh, in this this edition of Battlefleet Gothic.
1: So I mean it makes me think about like how rare they actually are. But, again, you've got two conflicting lore segments, kind of. But <clears throat>
2: To everybody except the Mechanicum, because we got, like, specialist torpedoes for days good stuff yeah
0: absolutely <laughs> absolutely i yeah, mean it's cool I, li- I love seeing the lore come to life right i mean it's just you know this 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 vortex torpedo hit the triumph of reason rolled an auto crit and uh shields collapsed right that's like that's exactly what happened <laughs> yeah it's yeah. it's bad
2: news for pretty much anybody to be hit by a vortex missile but uh this was like a full broadside so close it couldn't
0: and jason and patrick we know from battlefield gothic when your shields go down what's the next thing that happens
1: nothing good (laughs) nothing good especially as an orc nothing good
2: i think it's impressive orcs have shield technology figured out in the first
0: place like at all yeah yeah no I was going for uh, I was going for the uh, the teleport attack. Fucking oh board, yeah, yeah, boarding that's true. actions. Boy, yeah.
2: uh, Battlefleet Gothic 101. As soon as those shields collapse, and you're ten centimeters away, fire up. You board All right, so it's more or less exactly what uh, the vengeful spirit does. Uh, first off, as soon as this um, decameter thick hull plating is just disappearing into like the uh, maws of these void torpedoes. They are immediately launching Dreadclaws and Charybdis, Charybdi? Uh, (laughs) um, From the Sons of Horus, punching through these weakened hull points in just tons of places and vomiting Sons of Horus into there. Uh, followed up with a second wave of gunships and assault rams, and these go after um, more specific entry points like a uh, flight bays, hangars, uh, open gun ports, things like that. Uh, crash landing into them. So here's how bad things are on the Triumph. Like Lebray knows, this is this is not good. Like bad news bears, like on all boards. Um, so security bulkheads are slamming down, emergency alarms going off, repel borders, and. Uh, they're opening up the weapons cages uh, and not just the naval armsmen. They're arming everybody. They're low uh, arming the lowest galley rating to the highest astrogator, which... Astrogators are part of the personal like retinue and department of the astropath on board. So I mean that that's how bad this has gotten. They're they're arming like the astropathic choir uh, to try and push back the sons of Horus uh, to the elite solar auxilia of Lebray's own lifeguard cohort. Uh, they set up in uh, very important uh, checkpoints to try and funnel the Sons of Horus down to something they can possibly manage. Uh, but the Sons of Horus, they're in their element. Uh, they're smashing things in perfect, like, decapitation strike style. Uh, you got Legion Breachers, uh, taking down automated gun stations with shields locked together. Uh, you got Reavers just blasting through crew decks and just washing them (laughs) with the insides of everything they come into contact with. Um, they're just killing everything, like crew, servitor, armsman. Doesn't matter. Uh, at the defensive choke points, the solar auxilia they don't manage to stop anything, but they at least slow them. Uh, this is actually where the Justeran ended up. Uh, there's not a whole lot you can do to stop a Justeran. Uh, heck, even one of them. But these are you know entire squads of Justeran. You know, just pushing towards these checkpoints. However, uh, the solar auxilia are giving them hell. Uh, they're really kind of illustrating why they are the best of the best the mortals have to offer uh, they're putting so much Lazfire fire into cataphracty armor that the uh, front facings of their armor plates are actually starting to glow red and melt like the amount of Lazfire fire you have to put into like you know terminator armor which was developed might i remind everyone to work inside plasma uh, to get it to melt, it's a whole bunch, not a little. And then uh, <clears throat> that's not doing it though. Uh, it again, bad news bears across like every possible standard and metric. Uh, so Lebray gives a command he probably doesn't really want to do. Uh, for the last line of the flagship's defense, uh, all sorts of armored locking mechanisms are being tossed open, cryo chambers are getting vented, stuff's getting spooled up. Uh, LeBray gives the order to let loose the Ogren Charanites. Uh, Literally hundreds of them. Now, these guys are not your standard Ogryn, like from the Militia list. Uh, They're cybernetically augmented Ogryn. Augmented almost in the same way, uh, if you guys remember from 40k, the Arcoflagellants that a lot of Inquisitors love to use that are basically... Cybernetically augmented, they're augmented with, like, stem injectors. Uh, this mentions specifically a techno-arcana many had thought better abandoned to the Age of Strife. Uh, yes. But these things are still maintained under Imperial dispensation to the masters of the solar Auxilia. It's kind of like a last resort.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty grim. Like, like things are not going well on board the Triumph of Reason. Uh, you know, Admiral Lebray has basically, you know, he got to the point where he's going to break glass because, yeah, when Horace is on board your ship, it's it's definitely an emergency. So these speaking things are, yeah.
2: You're not kidding,
0: man. are not
2: kidding. Uh Speaking of Horace being on board your ship, at the bottom uh, across both page 50 and 51, there is a gorgeous, like, uh, picture of the sons of horus storming the front end of a uh, what looks to be like a hanger bag uh horus has got one poor bastard little solar auxilia like pinned to the floor i mean how bad is that one guy's day i mean that's got to be bad imagine how like just infinitesimal a single mortal is to horus but he picked out this one dude and he's like stepping on his chest
1: <laughs> So I kind of feel bad because also in this picture, there's like three auxilia coming around a corner and like there's a reaver right there. But also you see on the far left, there's like a Contemptor Dreadnought like stalking.
2: Yeah, he's like sneaking around a corner and admittedly, they're all staring at Horus. So, I mean, I can understand that. But now you got a Contemptor Dreadnought sneaking up on you from behind. That's going to be a, that's going to be. Doesn't surprise
0: if uh, if if reading this section doesn't make you want to play like zone mortalis blood, no, (laughs) yeah, uh, but no, man, zone mortalis blood in the void, like just you know, using all the rules for zero gravity and void hardened and um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It it makes me it makes me really really want to get my boy, uh, my ZM table built and done so we can uh, we can do badass games.
2: I am looking forward to it. Uh actually uh, pointed out something that caught my attention here. So if you guys check on page fifty one, uh, there's a single reaver getting out with a bolt gun and a power fist mm-hmm. of uh, his little landing craft. Directly to his left, there's a Cataphracty armored guy with a Volkite and what looks to be like a power axe in his right hand. But they've actually used the model, uh, the resin Cataphracty prater, but they've worked one of those sweet-like Sons of Horus really high-crested helms in there, and it just looks
1: badass. Hmm. Might have to make that happen. You might have to.
2: He looks pretty great. And I don't think... I think that's just supposed to be, like, a random Terminator, but that's the dude that, like, sat down with Horace. Like, we don't know his name, uh, we don't know who else is with him, but that specific cataphracty Terminator captain uh, totally hung out with Horace that one time. Murdered right. a whole bunch of dudes. <laughs> it was great stuff right all right so let's talk about what horus himself is doing uh these ogren charonites uh they, they're not great uh actually kind of like the uh vortex missiles horus unleashes They're sort of almost like relics from the Age of Strife. Like, not them specifically, but the technology used to create them. And uh, these things are even bigger and nastier than space marines. Because they're ogrens, which individually are already larger and tougher than space marines. But these guys have been augmented with, like, massive hydraulic crushing claws, like industrial shears. All sorts of nasty stuff that can tear apart bulkhead plates. Plus power arm and it actually comes to the point uh that they have stalled the sun's porous uh across like within the confines of passageways engine decks and where they might not have been as effective like on an open field this is the direct element where ogren charnites were built to really excel uh in the Ogun charnite entry itself it says specifically they were built to kind of counter some of these Astartes boarding assaults that really an ugly Unaugmented mortal can't stand up to. Uh, however, uh, these Charnites are pushing guys back. Uh, they're augmented and stemmed up to the point they're heedless of wounds that would have killed even an Astartes a couple of times over. And they're taken in a Incredible amount to put down. However, uh, for the briefest moment, a glimmer of hope came to the embattled survivors of the Triumph of Reason, only to die as the airy scream of reality being torn open echoed across the Loyalist flagship. The vengeful spirit's second wave of attack teleported on board. With them came Horus. So-
1: Daddy's home. Yeah.
2: He's not happy at, at what you've done with the place. Uh, they see him as literally a god of battle. Like, Nothing can stand up to Horus. It's the next most powerful thing, arguably. To the Emperor, and he wants you dead. He wants you and your friends dead. Literally everything about you dead. And he's coming for you. And in this, uh, the Sons of Horus, they find new vigor. It almost, uh, it's like a dark power seeping into their soul. that hurled them at the enemy once more like devils of ancient lore. Lebray at this point, he knows it's done, and he and personal lifeguard kinda try and break for the ship's fighter bay. Uh they actually manage to get inside of them before they're cut off. And it's kinda sad, much like a lot of the other ships, uh in the conflicts we've talked about so far, nobody really knows what's happened till like Loyalist forces push back through during like uh you know the scouring or what have you. But really uh LeBray party were kind of just torn apart in this crossfire and uh they only find out about it later. Uh, when his half incinerated body is identified long after War Master Horus had moved on from the War Avage system. So Horus takes the Triumph of Reason, gets to its command deck, kills everything on deck, uh, from the lowest servitor uh, to the astropathic choir breaks open the strategium kills everyone and from the corpse strewn bridge of the loyalist flagship he addresses the surviving loyalist fleets his voice burning across the cold void to the very depths of Port maw where the fighting raged on still to those who resisted him this god of death offered mercy and praise of their valiant if deluded struggle submission and service to him would spare him oh, this. They would be his, now and forever, or they would be exterminated utterly. So, except for a very few ships, uh, they do specifically call out the Kurga, if you remember last time, it's the ship with the arms, uh, that flee into the darkness at large. The loyalist ships struck their flags, dispersed their shields, and cut in their targeting aspects, and surrendering. Port Ma, and everything in it belongs to the War Master.
0: Yep, and uh, I mean that. I mean, that's that's the genius of Horus, right? I mean, you know, other other traitor primarchs, you know, even probably other loyalist primarchs, right? They would not they would not see this as an opportunity to both like end the fighting quickly and also bolster their ranks, right? Like I'm sure Horus is going to use these loyalists, you know, as, as fodder for the cannon later in the in the cru- or the you know the campaign back to Terra. But like he, uh, you know, he made his point. And he issued the ultimatum and you can hardly blame the guys, you know, the loyalists that are left for not continuing to fight. Right. I mean, um,
1: they just saw their capital ship essentially torn apart from the inside out. Like,
0: yeah. yeah. One
1: thing
2: I I definitely think that Horace has only Horace has here is I know we've talked several times about the timing with which all of these assaults come about. But think of the timing that had to go into this. He shows up directly when Port Maw has been thrown in confusion. The loyalist ships have managed to, you know, form a battle line, but it's anything but completely coherent. And Horace even comes in from the correct direction to kind of pincher the loyalist fleet between the remnants of the traitor fleet from the turncoats at port mall and just everything worked out so perfectly and came together more or less exactly how he wanted.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you're, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are as a mortal. If, if you're up against, you know, a Primarch and then the, probably the greatest tactical tactician Primarch of them all, um, Horace, uh, you know, it's just yeah. Yeah, sort of I mean, for- they don't call him the war
1: Master yeah. for nothing. I mean,
0: yeah, sort of a foregone conclusion. But um, I mean, we're we're early on. We're early on in uh, in you know the timeline after after the the you know the massacre at Istvan. And, uh, so this is this is good stuff, man. And what are, what do you think, Jason? We're about two thirds through the way here.
2: That sounds about
0: right. The next section is the darkness descending, which I know we are all like really excited about getting into because we get to really get into uh dark mechanicum and like lithra. Yeah. Yeah, this guy is this guy is on a whole nother level. And then I know Patrick, your nighthouse comes into play, right?
1: Yes. So yeah.
0: excited. <laughs> <laughs> and uh wait it actually my my uh, my nighthouse comes into play as well. So Pat yeah. and I did not know that before we started. Uh this this little like
1: I knew they were both in the book. I had read like the main like excerpts that they have. I think ours are actually right on top of each other. It's like page one hundred and sixty or something like that. Um, but just this deep dive in the lore has, if if listening to the to us does anything for you, I hope it makes you want to go out and hobby more. You yeah. know, like I mean, if it doesn't
2: get it, get that checked out,
1: yeah. Um, <laughs> Go to a GW store or go to your local flagship, what what have you, and just look at the wall of miniatures. And if that doesn't like get your juices flowing, you may want to see a doctor.
0: But yeah, guys, thanks uh, thanks for hanging out with us and. Um... I think we're going to try to try to get at it again next week and give you guys another episode before the holidays really hit hard. And, uh, you know, we might take a break for a couple of weeks, but don't worry, we'll be back. Um, we'll definitely be back next week and then we'll see what the uh, the holiday schedule brings. But I uh, yeah. hope, you know, hope everybody's having a good time. Keep sending us your questions. Uh, you know, keep telling us uh, what you like and and uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Give us a like on Facebook. Uh, you know, like this episode if you're listening to it on SoundCloud. We're also on iTunes. Um, and like Dave said, if you got any comments, concerns, you like what we're talking about here, but you wish we talked more about something else, just shoot us a Facebook message. Um, we're always excited to hear from you guys. Um, it means we're doing something. So. <laughs> All right, squad. All right, Dave, kick Craig out.
0: All right, Craig. Fuck time off. It's time for you to go.